When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 115 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. What is American evangelicalism? According to our guest today, Karen Swallow Pryor, contemporary evangelicalism is suffering from an identity crisis and a lot of bad press. In her new book, The Evangelical Imagination, Pryor, who is one of our most careful observers of and participants in evangelical life, analyzes the literature, art, and popular culture that has surrounded evangelicalism and unpacks some of the movement's most deeply held concepts, ideas, values, and practices. She shows that understanding what the term evangelical means today means understanding not only evangelicals' faith commitments, but also the images, metaphors, assumptions, and stories that have cultivated evangelical culture. As historian Mark Knoll writes in his cover blurb, quote, this book brings together the history of evangelicalism, Pryor's expertise in Victorian literature, and sensitive analysis of the present moment into an indictment of the evangelical imagination, but an indictment with hope because of evangelical engagement with the gospel, unquote. If you are an evangelical Christian or are interested in understanding evangelical religion, maybe you're a scholar of evangelical religion, I think you will enjoy and learn from this episode. Karen will be with us in a moment. But first, let's take care of some business. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you read or hear at Current and want to support our work, and that includes this podcast, our daily opinion features, The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, our new blog, The Arena, and our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics, head over to currentpub.com and click the red support button. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us on 
Twitter or X as it's now called at T W O I L H podcast. You can follow me over on that site at John Fia one, or you can follow current at current underscore pub one. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Karen Swallow Pryor is an award-winning author, frequent speaker, a monthly columnist at Religion News Service, and has written for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Vox. Her books include Fierce Convictions, The Extraordinary Life of Hannah Moore, Poet, Reformer, Abolitionist, and On Reading Well. Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Our interview today is based on her most recent book, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. That book was published in 2023 with Brazos Press. Our guest today on the program is Karen Swallow Pryor. She is the author of The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Karen, welcome to the show. It's great to be talking to you, John. Yeah, I think we've met once. I remember a conversation, a meeting at a conference on faith and history event. So it's good to have some more extended opportunity for conversation. That was an interesting year. Yes, it was. So tell me, I know you've probably answered this question a hundred times already. And the book's not even out yet, but we need to start somewhere. So what is the evangelical imagination? You know, tell me a little bit about the title of your book. Yeah, well, it, it's really more about the concept of the social imaginary. I draw heavily on Charles Taylor. That's a little bit of of a heavy title for my target audience, but I do make a connection between what we generally think of as the imagination and what Taylor and others mean when they talk about social imaginaries, which Taylor defines as kind of a pool of precognitive myths, stories, legends, ideas, visions for the good life that are lurking beneath the surface and kind of forming our desires and our expectations in ways that we aren't aware of or conscious of. And so various communities have social imaginaries. And of course, evangelicalism is a community, a movement. Um, And so I basically try to identify what I see as sort of the central driving metaphors, images, and visions and ideas of evangelicalism for its 300 year history what's good and what's bad and how they have played out in history and how they got us where we are today. What is it about your book, Karen, that for people who read books about evangelical identity or, you know, we have a lot of historians who listen to this podcast, 
also many who are interested in this question, kind of what is evangelicalism? You know, how is your book unique here? What kind of unique approach are you taking to this whole big kind of question? This is not an indictment on your book, but if I hear one more time, you know, or see one more time, like, what is an evangelical, right? Where do you fall on this or how are you approaching yeah, this? No. That's a fair enough question. And of course, just so everyone is clear who's listening, I'm, uh, I have a PhD in English literature, so I'm not a historian. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a theologian with a capital P. But I am an evangelical. And I do in the beginning of the book, because as you acknowledge, even the definition of evangelical is contested. I draw primarily on David Bebbington. I think everyone mostly does with some tweaks here and there. And I offer some of the tweaks. But again, I'm looking at what evangelicalism has been for 300 years and how it got to where it is today. But what's really different about my book is that it is a work of cultural criticism, but more specifically, it's, it draws upon literature and art and music and stories. Um, so I'm not coming at this from the point of view of a historian or a sociologist. That's just my field. It's my interest. It's my expertise. And I think it's different. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the details here. Early on, again, I'm just going to kind of pick out things that interested me. I encourage the listeners here to go out and get a copy of this book and read it. There's no way we can cover the breadth of Aaron, your ideas in this, you know, short interview. So just stuff that struck me, you know, I mean, it's all over the place, but I did try to, I did try to focus a little bit on your chapters here and some of the central themes. I was really intrigued. You know, you talk a lot about spiritual awakenings and just the idea of an awakening, right? And then you talk about this idea, right? The idea of wokeness, which comes out, right? It's semantically close right? <laughs> to maybe the same word. I don't know. To awakening, same root word. Tease this out for me a little bit more because you make this connection between spiritual awakenings and then being woke, mm-hmm. right? You know, put those things <laughs> together because in our current like political culture, you listen to some conservative evangelical Christians and the answer to wokeness is awakening, right? You know, <laughs> no one ever connects them, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm a word person. I love yeah. word histories and etymology and connections. And as I was digging into this book and, and really sort of one of the central points was a later chapter, Conversion, that's central to evangelicalism, as anyone who's encountered Bebbington knows. Mm-hmm. But as I was thinking about it and writing and, of course, drawing from literature, I realized that, you know, that awakening is such a powerful metaphor within evangelical history, not only in terms of the obvious one, the great awakenings in American history, um, but even the, the Bible. I mean, that's a word that comes from scripture, awake, go sleeper, right? I mean, there's this call, this prophetic call to people, to to the believers and, and the soon-to-be believers to waken from slumber and to, yeah, wake up. Um, and, you know, as someone, to be completely transparent, as someone who has been accused of being woke, which I don't <laughs> think is, you know, a bad thing, because another of the four points of Bebbington's quadrilateral is activism. Evangelicals are activists, whether on the left or on the right. That's in our DNA. And so this word, and I give the sort of the brief history of the word woke in the African-American vernacular, which is to become awake, to be conscious of injustice, individual systemic injustice. And it's something that 
is tied to our conscience and to our awareness of any kind of injustice. And in this context, it was, you know, for African-Americans. But the point I make in making this connection is, you know, it's part of what I'm doing in the whole book, that these words are metaphors. And metaphors are powerful, and they can be used and misused and abused. And the word awakening has a really strong central part in evangelical history. And being woke is not unconnected to that. And for us to take that word or anyone to take that word and turn it into an insult and pervert the meaning and use it as a weapon against those who are really doing the same thing evangelicals were doing, which was to awaken the conscience and and to change the world. Those two things are much more connected than a lot of people want to see. And I think, right, your book, I mean, you're not the first person to do this, but your book challenges this longstanding, you know, dichotomy, I mean, in the minds of evangelicals that, you know, there's the social gospel. Yeah, this goes back to fundamentalism, right? You know, the social gospel and then the true gospel is just all vertical, you know, relationship to God. And I think this theme comes out over and over again in your book, right? That, you know, the gospel is more than just like, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart. And you have some great stories in there about your own experience with conversion that I encourage my listeners to go uh, to go pick up. Um, so how would you respond then to uh, I kind of joked a little bit about this with you when I asked you the, the last question, but you hear pastors and evangelical kind of commentators say today you know that the answer to all our social and moral problems is just more conversion you know Mm -hmm. i've heard it with guns i've heard it with you know a bunch Mm -hmm. of other things how would you respond to that oh that's such a good question and i i do sort of weep the answer to this question i think throughout my book um now again i'm an evangelical and i understand that part of what it means to be evangelical is to emphasize that individual conversion experience being born again, which one can only do as an individual. Yet at the same time, we live in this, within this social imaginary and various social imaginaries that have an influence on how we have that experience, how we think about that experience, and then how we apply that. And so, you know, we as evangelicals tend to overemphasize individualism. This is part of evangelicalism. It's also as American as apple pie, you know, to emphasize individualism. And yet, conversion itself isn't something that happens in a vacuum. And so we can have false converts. We can have, I I quote the passage about traveling over land and sea and making converts that that are worse than the devil. And we also can sacrifice the process of discipleship and growing Christians. And so conversion, again, is central to evangelicalism. It's a biblical idea. And yet, if we emphasize it at the expense of other aspects of the Christian faith, then we can end up distorting what once was and is um, an important concept. So is the answer to all our social problems, our culture, our politics, our guns, our whatever, is it, is it we need a new revival? Well, if it, if, <laughs> we, we need another yes, third great yes, awakening. Yeah, yeah, I, no, I, yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine that we will hear, or I have heard in my context many times, about something like racism, that it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem, right? And yet, when it comes to other issues, um, like abortion, all of a sudden, you know, most evangelicals realize that there are cultural 
framework that either encourage or discourage abortion. And we need to do things together to solve that. And so it's always, everything is a sin problem. And yet we live in community, different cultures have different moral blind spots and different weaknesses. And so we must address those as a community. Or if you believe in sin, right, it's embedded in the, in the culture, it's systemically there, right? You know, so anyway, we could get into a whole other discussion about that. You are on, I don't know if you know this or not, you are on a podcast called The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Um, <laughs> oh, that's right. This was the title of actually my first book in which I, I was so thrilled to read that chapter on improvement because earlier in my career, I wrote about that idea in the 18th century and its connection to the Enlightenment and so forth. So never seen anyone write this much about improvement. And I, I was like, I yes. I did not read your book in my research, John. I, oh, I wouldn't have expected you to. It was no, I, no. 15 years ago. And <laughs> now I want to read it. I'm going to go out and get well, it. So this this is a question I've really been interested in. This was about an 18th century guy who kind of farmer who improved, you know, went to Princeton in 1770s and but deeply Christian. And so the book, you know, I've always had this kind of ongoing project in my life about how to connect these ideas of, you know, it's that whole thing about the enlightenment, improvement, ambition, making something of yourself, right? Self-improvement with spiritual improvement, sanctification, I think you call it at one point, right? Talk about that. Even the idea of vocation implies some kind of like pursuit of improving education you know, kind of thing. We tell our students, right, you know, pursue a vocation, get a degree so you can go pursue, right? How do you sort that all out? Elaborate a little bit on your argument in chapter five. The task that I take on the word improvement comes from, again, my area of expertise is, is 18th century, 19th century British literature. So this is very much enlightenment oriented culture and, and art. And so the idea of progress is commonly said in my field to be sort of invented in the 18th century, right? It's a very 18th century idea. And I talk about that as well. You know, I wasn't sure which approach I was going to take in this chapter because I know that, you know, the subtitle of this book is how stories, images, and metaphors created a culture in crisis. And I see one part of our crisis as evangelicals in this current moment is one where we're constantly like, you know, influencers are really big. We have huge, you know, sales and self-help books and, and all kinds of conferences and workshops and seminars and webinars that are trying to improve us. And yet that just doesn't seem quite like what sanctification is, what holiness is, what growth and maturity uh, in the Christian walk are. And so I ended up tracing the idea of improvement back to um, to its, its origins in, in England, um, which was in the context of improving lands and, and land holdings. And eventually that came to um, mean self-improvement as the enlightenment contributed to the rise of the individual and social mobility and such improvement became impossible. One of the things that I, you know, when I teach these kinds of things to my students or, you know, even to listeners here, I mean, imagine living as a human being in a, a context in which for thousands of years, nothing had changed for your people. You know, that they had all lived in the same place, done the same kind of work, um, and nothing really changed. You wouldn't really even be thinking about improvement. You're just, you know, living your life and 
having your children and feeding your family and sleeping at night and doing what you had to do. And so this is a very modern enlightenment idea. Um, but I think the idea of improvement is less than what we as Christians and particularly evangelicals should be striving for in terms of sanctification. But we've, we've kind of gotten them confused. Yeah, it's interesting you bring in the kind of pedagogical examples. I have a lecture in my big U.S. survey class on the Enlightenment. And the first thing I ask the students is, you know, how many of you want to improve your life? You know, every hand goes up, right? By the fact that you're sitting here in college, right? You want to. And then I say, like, could, you know, I do exactly what you did. You know, could you imagine a world in which Adam and Eve wanted to improve themselves or you know, could you imagine a world in which people didn't like that? You know, like I get very specific. I point to the kind of medieval peasant who's, you know, sitting on a plow thinking like, I'm, I'm not going to college with my kids. Gosh, darn it. They're going to go get an education. And, you know, no, no, they're not. <laughs> you know, After and, I plow this field, I'm going to self-actualize. <laughs> exactly. Or I'm going to go get, you know, uh, go get the recent copy of Norman Vincent Peale's book. You know? yes. No, this is, this is great. Let's switch gears a little bit. I don't know if you think about it this way, but I want to treat your two chapters. This is chapter seven and eight on material culture and consumerism. And then the chapter eight on domesticity. And, you know, there's a lot of ways we could go here, but this is what struck me. As you said, you're a scholar of British literature, right? To what extent is evangelicalism, as you're, you know, as expressed in British literature and in Kind of American culture. To what extent is this just another name for like middle class, right? I'm reading your your chapter on domesticity, thinking like in American historiography. I mean, this is just she's basically describing the rise of the American middle class, the British middle class, right? Domesticity, consumerism, and this goes back to your larger theme, right? You know, how much is American evangelicalism or evangelicalism in the West? simply a, and this maybe even gets back to improvement, right? A middle class, a white middle class maybe thing that is really indistinguishable from the way most other middle class people kind of live their life. That is a great question. And in as much as it is, or they are very much like one another. That is the project of this book is to yeah, try to yeah. tease out and disentangle them. I'm not going to say how much they are alike. That's not necessarily all bad because if we go back mm -hmm. to the Wesleys and Whitfields and how they preached in the open air and were able to attract listeners to their sermons who were from not just the middle class, but like the laboring classes and, mm -hmm. and the poor class, the time period itself is tied inextricably to the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the middle class because of increased sources of wealth. So you cannot really separate them historically. What we can do is, as much as possible, separate them culturally and theologically and doctrinally. But it, that's hard to do, and that, that's what the project of this book is. So evangelicalism, as a product of modernity and the Enlightenment, emphasize the importance of the individual soul, beginning with conversion and then following, you know, improvement, sanctification, growth, education. I mean, people like William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore, late 19th, late, late 18th century evangelicals fought for the abolition of the slave trade. They fought to educate the poor. They fought for women's rights, for child labor, all of these things to improve the lives of everyone. 
And so those improvements actually work. So we did get social mobility and we got improvements in life and more material wealth. Evangelicals helped to bring that about. And that's good. I'm thankful for a lot of those things. Yet at the same time, we need to realize, you know, what is just cultural, what is material um, versus what is transcendently, universally, absolutely Christian, true in every time and every place and not just white middle-class Americans. So British and American moral reform, which is what most of us, we tried to, I don't know if you do this, I'll just speak for myself. Mm -hmm. When we tried to defend the goodness of evangelicalism (laughs) against all the critics, I like to say, well, what about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Grimke sisters and uh, the, anti- the abolitionists and da, 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 da. you know, I'll continue to defend evangelicalism that way. Right. The moral. Right, right. But I think what you're getting at is right. We don't realize I like to use this this phrase. Right. You know, we don't realize how deeply we've drunk, if you will, or have drunk in what you're the English professor <laughs> from the wells of these, whether they be kind of a particular view of men and women in the home or the church, Mm -hmm. whether it be a particular life defined by consumerism, whether it be a particular kind of, yeah, whatever the issue might be, right? You know, domesticity. Um, And again, for listeners out there, if you're interested in kind of at least starting to think about pulling these things apart, go get Karen's book because (laughs) You know, this is at the heart of what you're doing. If you're not interested, go get my book. Yeah, well, well, we have, yeah, we, that's right. We have a lot of um, our, our listeners here. We have a lot of evangelicals who listen to this podcast, but we also have just people who are not people of faith at all, who are just kind of interested in history and religion and so forth. You know, there's all kinds of readers that need to pick up this book. Let me quote something from chapter nine of your book. This jumped out at me on the page. You write, it is almost impossible to imagine an evangelical movement that is not an empire building enterprise, not a movement rooted in political and cultural domination and not propagated by the power of money, business and capitalism rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now, you develop this in the the rest of that chapter, but, you know, give us the elaborate on this thought a Mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, I mean, first, the caveat, I mean, of course, evangelicalism is a worldwide global movement, especially now. And it, you know, outside of America, it is being led more than inside America in in what it, you know, has been historically. So this book and what I'm writing about really focuses on sort of the transatlantic 18th, 19th century and to to the current times evangelical experience. And this is the empire building that I'm talking about. So uh, as you were reading that, I was thinking, well, maybe I can't imagine <laughs> an evangelical, you know, I'm projecting myself, but I really can't. Uh, and I think many people, you know, in my context also can't. And so the connection that I make is that, you know, it's it's really a simple historical one. And that is that, again, evangelicalism rose to prominence in England during the late 18th and early 19th century and through the Victorian age. And that is the age in which it was said, the sun never sat on the British Empire, right? I mean, Great Britain was the worldwide empire, and it also was largely formed and shaped and identified with evangelicalism. So even the good things like the missions movement that arose during that time was directly connected to empire building. And so 
we have that in our roots and we haven't really rid ourselves of it. And I make the connection between, you know, colonialism and that imperialist mindset of the 19th century and even into the 20th century to the kind of empire building that we see in the evangelical industrial complex today. And the centerpiece of that chapter is where my strength is in literature rather than in, in history, but is um, that poem by Rudyard Kipling, which has been beloved for so long, The White Man's Burden. I'm able to include the entire poem in it. It's not very long, but it really, you know, it's a poem I've known for years, but it's one of those that the more I become awakened in my conscience to colonialist and imperialist attitudes, the more shocking the poem becomes. So 20 years ago, I could read it and just see it as a kind of a quaint historic poem that reflects 19th century early 20th century values. And now I look at it and I think, wow, this is in our, this kind of racism and colonial posture toward other countries is in our DNA. And I don't think we have grappled with it yet. We are still an empire building movement. I'm guessing we're probably around the same age. I'm young enough to never experienced a time in which that poem was not deemed kind of racist, or, but, but it, <laughs> has, it has taken much greater it's resonated much more i think mm -hmm. i went back and read it just i stumbled upon it and reread it a couple of years ago and i was just like whoa this is mm -hmm. you talk about the um in this chapter if i remember correctly also though the empire of like the economic empire right the businesses the is mm -hmm. this the chapter we talk about the kitsch and the, the commitment to capitalism and these kinds of things you know so i think you know i, I that's woven through a few chapters i talk that's about right. Yeah, yeah I, I talk about kitsch in the chapter on sentimentality, That's right. uh, you know, and art. Then in the, the subsequent chapter on materiality, I talk about how even just sentimental art and kitsch, which is kind of, you know, cheap reproductions of things as one, one aspect of it, is only possible because of our technology and our economic structures. And so that ties to, as you've already pointed out, empire. And so there is you know, again, this was something that I discovered in my research. I didn't really know this. And for some people, a lot of what's in my book is old news. OK, acknowledge that. I think it will be for, you know, scholars and stuff, you know, I mean, but that's not who you're writing to exactly. you put I, things together in such a way, I think, for the general reader to, you know, which is, I think, your audience. Right. Right. And, and I also, in this regard, am sort of a general reader. I, I was researching these things and learning for myself the first yeah. time. For example, that um, D.L. Moody is credited or <laughs> blamed for marrying the business model with missions yeah. and Christian higher education. You know, and so now we have a lot of Christian schools that not just run on a business model. I mean, they all have to, but they actually have that business ethos and posture and dress code and identify that not with just being business-like, but actually being Christian. And that's where we need more of that disentangling. Like I said, a lot of people are not going to pick up Tim Gloge's book on Moody, but they will read your book. There's a certain um, kind of active translation. Here. Yeah, that, that is actually how I describe my work as, as, as a yeah. translation. So yeah. yes, yeah. exactly. And we need more of that. You know, I, I can't remember which chapter. I, I just got to bring this up. We we're talking about consumerism and 
you know, so I, I teach this class where it's kind of an interdisciplinary first year class for all students at the college I teach at Messiah University. And we read Dorothy Sayers' essay, Why Work? She has that wonderful section in there on how bad Christian art and Christian pop culture kind of is theater and so forth. I still haven't successfully done this because I'm not an art critic and I'm not a kind of artsy, kind of cultural kind of guy like that. But I tried to get them to see why like Thomas Kincaid paintings are like so bad. <laughs> and, you know, they all have a Thomas, me and my evangelical students probably all have a Thomas Kincaid painting there. So, but again, it's the mass production, it's the business. It's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's really good art from the perspective of uh, someone who really knows art. It's like, if you can sell it. That's right. such a metaphor back to these metaphors for, for mm -hmm. evangelical kind of culture. You know, Eva, I just was reading a piece the other day. I can't remember who wrote it about how, you know, the selling of Christian nationalism at these Trump mm -hmm. events where you can get a shirt. Mm -hmm. ah. So, yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with a lot of that stuff and helped me to better understand why, like, my art professors in my college despise Thomas Kincaid or you know, <laughs> these kinds of things. Nothing against Thomas Kincaid. I'm sorry if you have one. Well, the um, interesting thing about him, and I think I mentioned this in the book, is that Thomas Kincaid was actually a very talented artist and he yeah. did more, you know, objectively good art before he got yeah. into yeah. this sort of industry that machine making art. Once he found his evangelical audience, he, uh, down, so to speak. <laughs> yes. A couple other quick questions here. I know our time is running short. To what extent, as you see it, is the problem within evangelicalism? You know, you could tell me a problem is the right word. I, I think it is. To what extent is what I'm about to ask you, I think, is what you're going to get a lot of pushback from, from a certain mm -hmm. kind of conservative evangelical, right? You go after, as a literature professor, right? You go after literalism. Right. In the interpretation of the Bible, you do throw in a reference there to the Chicago statement on inerrancy, which I sense that was kind of to, you know, calm your critics a little bit. But there's metaphor. To what extent is the problem with evangelicalism just the failure to engage in these kind of imaginative qualities of metaphor when they read a text like the Bible? And you had me going in this chapter because, you know, you started with the rapture. And then I'm like, what is she doing? Where is she going? This is the last chapter. We're, we're running with the rapture here. And then you have this great, you know, what does all this have to do with the rapture? Like, ah, no. <laughs> I got it. So, so go ahead and elaborate a little on that. Oh, I'm, I'm so enjoying it. following along your reading journey as you describe yeah. it. Very, it's very gratifying as a writer to, to have yeah. that. So thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I use the rapture as an example of the reading problem, right? Now, you know, spoiler alert, I haven't studied the rapture or the original languages in the Bible enough to, you know, know what interpretation I have of the rapture. And what I say in the book is I really don't care. Growing up and even, I've come down to that as well, you know, like, what does N.T. Wright say? Okay, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I do, I do quote N.T. Wright, right. I'd rather, I'd rather spend my time studying Jane Austen. So. Yeah. But the point is that that if we simply accept certain interpretations, as I did growing up, without knowing that they're interpretations, I mean, I described in the book of my shock and learning from the first time from a Presbyterian friend as an adult that the idea of a literal rapture 
was a novel idea in the 19th century. I was like, what? <laughs> um, and so, so it's again, it's an example of what I'm talking about in the entire book, which is that we have unexamined assumptions that we don't even know are unexamined assumptions. And one of the most important ones of those for evangelicals for whom the Bible is, is our central source of authority is we have to understand how we're reading it. And we have to understand that there are different ways of reading it. And we have to make judgments about whose readings we're accepting, whose we're not, or just the fact that there are different ways of reading because we do read in community, not just as individuals. And that's true of, of an experience of, of reading a literary text. Many of us have anecdotes about reading a classic work of literature with a bad teacher versus later reading it with a good teacher and having an entirely different under, understanding of it. Well, that is no less true. It's much more true of the Bible, the way that we read in community and understand in community. And so the rapture is just a way of talking about how important language is, the, including the language of the Bible and metaphor and how all language is metaphorical. And so there isn't even the idea of reading something literally literally doesn't make sense if we understand the way that language works yes it always fascinates me that you know a lot of these kind of you know literalists if you want to call them that they they do accept metaphor unless it doesn't jive with their overall scheme or oh, of course that's metaphor you know like leviticus or whatever you know or you know of course that's all metaphor but no no this is literal or or even reading texts within their kind of historical, you know, this is what I learned from Wright, you know, and to write, you know, reading texts within their historical kind of framework and what that word would have meant at the time, or, you know, it's such a kind of cherry picking. Right, right. You know, you know and the reason I quoted the Chicago statement on inerrancy is because it actually it does accommodate those. It is right. more sophisticated than the lay person who's just saying, oh, I take the Bible literally, God said it, I believe it, that's, you know, whatever the bumper sticker is. Those ideas can have bad consequences when they're simply watered down or poorly taught or not taught enough. We are people of the word. We should really be thinking more about um, how language functions and its effect on our imagination. And that's really kind of the whole point of my book. I also loved, I'll preface this statement by saying, Earlier this year, we had this, I don't know if you've seen this book by this guy, Dan Hummel, on uh, dispensationalism, the history of dispensationalism. He's been making the rounds a little bit. He's, you know, in his 30s, I think, you know, and he talks about the movie Thief in the Night as a primary source, you know, that he's exploring <laughs> for the first time. You know, but when you were talking about the sheer terror that you felt when you watch that thing, I became an evangelical, had a conversion experience at age 16, and I watched that thing and freaked out. I mean, I couldn't, you know. And then when I got to seminary, I did a seminary degree. Finally, I got to the point where I was able to kind of watch it with fellow seminarians and like <laughs> even the night party, you know, like where we just got, ah, look at this. But yeah, it's just I appreciated all the rapture culture that you, <laughs> that you unpacked. In that. Well, it, for so many of us, it's really formed our imaginations, even yes. in ways that we don't necessarily recognize. Exactly. I can't hear the song, Larry Norman, uh, You've Been Left Behind, without picturing that razor in the sink, you know, at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so you've said this a couple of times during the course of our interview. 
you know, I get this question all the time because I have been unwilling to give up the evangelical label. You know, I, I take more of a kind of, I want that word back kind of approach. You know, speaking of words, you know, I think in the book, and you've even said it today, you identify, you use the term evangelical to describe yourself. Like, why are you still an evangelical? Why do you still embrace that term to describe yourself? I'm sure you'll get asked this by others if you haven't already. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, and again, you know, it depends on the definition. And again, I don't think anyone would argue that David Bevington's, you know, definition is, is the basic starting point. And, you know, I call myself an evangelical because I believe in the centrality of the conversion experience. I believe in the Bible as God's central authority for the believer. I believe in the centrality of, of Christ's crucifixion for us, for our sin. And I'm, I'm an activist. <laughs> and so I, you know, I understand that the word has been sullied and it's, it's been, you know, has different connotations now than it did in the 18 and 1900s. Uh, you know, Jane Austen didn't like the evangelicals either. She says so in a letter. So, so this disdain toward evangelicals isn't new. Maybe something is happening in this historical moment right now that historians later will come to, to call something else. Um, but we're in the middle of it, and I don't know what it looks like on the other side. And so I, you know, I could call myself by a different name, but I'd still be what those things are. Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. I always ask this to people because I, you know, I'm I'm getting tired of kind of like, I don't use these exact words, but, you know, I'm an evangelical, but I'm not that kind of evangelical. Like, why do I have to, you know, keep mm -hmm. using that caveat every time I call myself an evangelical? I've actually tended to use evangelical as a as an adjective more like for christian mm -hmm, right you know, as opposed mm -hmm. to just an evangelical as if it's a noun or something but you know we all we all kind of navigate these things the way uh you know in our own individual contexts and so forth we have been talking to karen swallow prior she is the author hot off the press uh, we're talking a day before the actual book launch but you'll be listening to this after the book launch the Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis, blurbs from Tish Harrison Warren of the New York Times, although I think she just actually left the New York Times, Peter Weiner, uh, Makoto Fujimara, and for all of you history buffs out there, Mark Knoll gives a nice uh, word of praise as well, as well as many other uh, endorsements. So, Karen, thanks so much. I know it's a busy week of publicity for you. So uh, thanks for squeezing us in. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a great Again, I think that was another great interview. I really enjoy talking with Karen Swallow prior. This is a unique book, and we address some of this in the interview, because for those of you who are interested in this question of evangelical identity, what is an evangelical? Maybe some of you are not evangelicals. You're not even Christians. 
and you're trying to figure out this movement that's getting all this press, especially in the realm of politics, there's different ways of kind of coming at this. And a lot of commentators have come at the idea of evangelicalism theologically and historically. In fact, I think evangelicalism became a kind of subject of study thanks to historians like Mark Knoll, who blurbs the book, and George Marsden and Randall Balmer and others. But there are very few out there. I mentioned Roger Lundeen at Wheaton was very good at this. I think uh, give a shout out. I don't know him, but Alan Noble, who has written some interesting stuff from a literary point of view. When you come at this question of evangelicalism from the concept, you know, the ideas of literature and words and culture and art and the way in which we imagine this movement through these various things, you start to ask some different questions. And I think that's what Karen is is doing here in this book. You know, how do these stories, these images, these metaphors, how have they shaped evangelicalism as opposed to kind of the nonfiction word or philosophy or theology or these kinds of things? So uh, go out there and get the book. I thought this would be a little bit of a different episode for us because we weren't talking to a historian per se, but I think a lot of what Karen said is also talks a lot about the past, let's put it that way. And, and that makes it kind of deeply historical in some ways. And, you know, historians have done a lot of this work too, in showing the way, especially Noel and others, about the way in which evangelicalism is tied into these kind of larger political ideas. Now we get a nice book here on how evangelicalism is tied into these cultural and artistic and literary trends and how those things have shaped evangelicalism. So I hope you enjoyed this interview, go out and get the Evangelical Imagination, published with Brazos Press. And as always, thanks for listening. And may your way of improvement be home. The Way of Improvement podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermeling. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville, and I, John Fiat, am your host.